Please turn back to John chapter 5, and beginning at verse 16 is our passage. I was not privy to the discussion on the staff which uh, chose the title of the series, so I'm just making a guess. If I'm wrong, it doesn't really matter. But I guess life in the sun may have a a double meaning, since it's uh, going through July and August, when people are going out to get the sunshine with S-U-N, and uh, we may be enjoying life in the sun, S-O-N. Anyway, this sermon is built on that assumption. If I'm wrong, then the rest of this series will put it correct. Uh, But you see, it is true that Jesus is both sun, S-O-N, and S-U-N. And if we're we're concerned about the sunshine, I'm the worst person out to introduce this series. For sitting in the sun, basking in the sunshine, is not my scene at any time. I might, under pressure, sit on a beach for a little while just to be companionable, but uh, it's not me at all, and uh, therefore I'm sorry I've got to sort of disillusion you at the beginning. But the Bible does in fact talk about Jesus as the sun, S-U-N, In the book of Malachi, it talks about the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And uh, that is, of course, a line in the the carol heart the herald angels sing, which you'll all remember has got a sermon in every line. You do remember that bit, don't you? And uh, once I remember, we did actually try and sing it in August just to prove a point, but it didn't kind of work. It wasn't kind of right. But uh, he will be the son of righteousness and he will rise. And in the uh, Gospels he is seen as shining in the transfiguration mount like the sun. And in the book of Revelation there is no sun in heaven, S-U-N, because he himself will be the lamb will be the lamp. Incidentally, if you're a kind of sea lover and a sun lover, heaven's going to pose a problem for you. Revelation says there's no more sea, and apparently there's no more sun, so enjoy the sun and the sea while you have it. Uh, I will be quite content. I, uh, that's why I enjoy living in Sheffield. It's the furthest you can get from the sea. I'm more than happy uh, to, to live here. But the challenge of the sonship, S-O-N ship, of Jesus, which is where we are, is tremendously significant. And I hope this series will help us to see what that may mean to us now and then. What is intriguing is this little series from John hovers around some of the signs of Jesus. Now remember, the signs of Jesus are important in themselves. If you've been paralysed for 38 years, you were glad of somebody who helped you to walk. If you were hungry, you were glad to feed, be fed with the 5,000. These signs were in themselves significant, but they pointed beyond them. And that's what our series is going to do. Uh, and there are... Uh, Three signs during this series. I'm going to come back to the paralyzed man in a moment. Then we shall have the feeding of the 5,000, which speak about satisfaction. Then we have the, the blind man who was able to see, and who not only saw physically, but came to see Jesus, and we'll see what that fulfillment may mean. And just the beginning of looking on to the greatest sign of all. Look at verse 25 of this passage. Do you see the Lazarus sign coming? The time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Lazarus, come forth. And uh, those who hear will live. The final sign. But we begin, of course, with the sign of the paralytic, the man who back in verse 5 had been an invalid for 38 years. 
As time passes rather quickly, it doesn't seem all that long since I could say, you know, about my age, this man, he's been paralyzed as long as I've lived. Now I've doubled his life with a few years to spare. So there you are. But nonetheless, 38 years is a long time. Cast your mind back to 1972. Now, some of you haven't got a hope of casting your mind back to 1972. You weren't here. But those of us who were here in 1972, it's a long time ago. I think Sheffield Wednesday were in the first division then. I think, that's <laughs> I think that's right. And only Sheffield Wednesday, only in England could you actually go down to Division 1. You know we Sheffield Wednesday, we've gone down to Division 1. That's pretty good going, going down to 1. But what, 72, 1972, 38 years ago, a long time. This man had had 38 years as an invalid. And what did Jesus say to him? Look at verse 14, it leads into our passage. He saw this man who had been 38 years an invalid was now able to walk, see you are well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Worse? Worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? If you take the Bible seriously, the awesomeness of sin and the judgment on it is always worse than suffering. We live in a world where suffering is the greatest ill. Persecuted Christians know that's not true. They're willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. In the Bible, sin is always a worse thing. And the judgment upon sin, which has eternal consequences, is worse than being invalid for 38 years. And so as a result of this remarkable sign, you see in verse 16, it had happened on the Sabbath. And therefore, with a niggling legalism... They're not excited about a man who can walk now. They're just bothered. He shouldn't have done it on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus was a great believer in using the Sabbath properly. He would be in the synagogue. He wasn't liberal in the view of what we call Sunday. He took it very seriously. But he believed it was right that God should do his work and he should do God's work. And do you see what he says? And this is the, the, the key bit in verse 17. My father... Is always at work, and I too am working. Now they got the message, and people often in our day don't get the message. No Jew ever called God my Father. Utterly unbelievable. They would call him our Father, the Father of our nation, the one who pities his own children. Oh yes, the Psalms are full of that note. But my Father. This is the audacity of Jesus. Now, this series, I hope, will make us constantly amazed. That word, amazed, comes a couple of times in this passage. Because the truth about Jesus is utterly amazing. They took him seriously, verse 18, and tried to kill him. We don't take him seriously, and we anaesthetize him. We have a Jesus who doesn't do any harm to anybody, who's lovely and nice and meek and mild and never hurts a fly. And that Jesus never lived, didn't exist. But the Jesus they knew was claiming to be God. So in a sense they were right within their own thinking to get rid of him. He was blasphemous, unless of course he were true. And he makes it worse of course, Jesus, in the discussion that follows as Jesus takes the attack to his enemies. He wants to challenge them about what he's doing and what he offers. In verse 23 calling himself still the Son. Listen to verse 23. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Now, I meet lots of people who want to say to me, well, of course, I don't 
believe in Jesus. I do believe in a God, of course I do. But I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe he was son of God. What our Lord is daring to say is you can't have that option. If you reject me, you reject God. Now this is audacious, but Christians believe it to be true. Because you see, you may believe in a sort of God, a first cause, but the kind of God the Bible speaks about in as his climax sent his son into the world. Reject him, you reject God. It's interesting, in Matthew's Gospel, there's a very similar phrase of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says this, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That is, my Father again, daring to say, I'm the only one who really knows God as he is, and I want to tell you about him. So that's the Jesus we have to deal with. And the wonder and the miracle is that for many of us in church tonight, in a few moments we shall break bread to remember him, for he's transformed our lives. But there may be some here still for whom Jesus is on the periphery. We take a nodding interest in him. We wouldn't dream of not coming to church with the idea of one who claims this kind of thing. Interesting, isn't it? In this passage, what we're going to learn, two things come to us through the Son, uniquely through the Son. One is revelation, which is truth. The other is resurrection, which is life. And this Gospel of John was written that you may believe and that believing you may have life. Chapter 20, verse 31. And the passage we, we, we'll look at will demonstrate that we listen to the truth and we receive the life. Twice in my life, I have been challenged, encouraged, lifted up by one verse in the New Testament. Mark, chapter 8, verse 38. Where Jesus dares to say, Mark 8, 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words, I will be ashamed of him when I come in the glory of my, Holy, of my Father. And twice God spoke to me very pertinently through that verse. One was uh, when I was a young Christian, I'd spent two terms at Oxford, and I had, uh, yes, I got to the Christian Union. I'd said my prayers, but my sporting interests, and I had quite a number of them, made me companion with lots of people who weren't Christians. So I kept my two worlds apart. I was ashamed. And I remember that verse coming poignantly home to me one Easter time. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. And I made a vow then I'd never again be ashamed of him. I tried to keep it. I failed. But the second month was more significant. I was already now in ministry. I was uh, preaching. And I was beginning to realize that if you wanted to go places in the church, you I better not be so dogmatic. Tone it down. Be more liberal. Be broader in your views. Very tempting. Terribly tempting. Indeed, I had people whisper in my ear what might happen to me if I only was a little less dogmatic, evangelical, strong on the word of God. And the temptation was to be ashamed. And then came Mark 8.38 to me. If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words. And I knew I was being tempted to be ashamed of his words. For example, tempting not to believe in the awesomeness of hell the judgment of it, 
till I realise that Jesus says more about hell than anybody else in Scripture. Full stop. You can't deny that. And he says one of the most awesome things about hell. Am I ashamed of his words? Do I wish he'd not said them? And the other one that came was the, the, big, the challenge when you're dealing with multi-faith. Isn't it lovely to think of all religions leading to God their own way? That's the popular way. That's the way to be well-received in the world of today. And then I hear Jesus saying, no one comes to the Father but through me. And the temptation was to be ashamed of those words. I wish he hadn't been so dogmatic. I thank God I won the victory then and I've tried ever since to be true. But every now and again, and we're seeing it again in the church today, uh, if you weren't here this morning, you should get a, uh, a CD of Andrew's sermon, which is a very powerful sermon. Uh, and I've I found it very helpful sitting in the pew this morning. A reminder to us in the hour in which we live that we must never be ashamed of the words of Jesus. Now, this is the challenge of these verses. This is the Jesus we talk about. He's offering life as the Son of God, the unique Son of God. I prepare my sermon sitting in a nice flat on, down in Sefton Road. We've got a kind of view. If it was Switzerland, we'd, have a, it'd, we'd be a room with a view. There'd be pictures and television about Lovely view we have. And then I turn my uh, head right when I'm wrestling with a text. And incidentally, this was a difficult passage to wrestle with. I have never preached on John 5 before in my ministry in full, so I've been challenged. So there you are. And as I was wrestling with this text... If you turn your head right from my uh, window in the flat where we live, uh, there's a wall which every now and again gets graffiti on it, the wall of the hospital board. Every now and again, somebody decides to put meaningless graffiti on it till somebody wipes it off. Which reminds me, you see, way back in the 1970s, I think it was, there was a famous graffiti in London, which was the inspiration of many a sermon. Somebody outside the, the walls of the hospital put the graffiti, is there life before, underline, death? Is there life before death? Some poor soul who must have been struggling. A good question. And the challenge of Jesus, he offers us life before death and life after death. And that's what I'm concerned to enjoy and share with others. Who would minimize the words of Jesus just to be popular in our day? Two things through the sun. Through the sun, revelation, that's truth. Through the sun, resurrection, that's life. And they all come from these verses. Through the sun, revelation, verses 19 to 23. The truth about the Father and the truth about the Son. You read the verses through and Jesus speaks with authority about God. About, uh, oh dear me, 30 odd years ago, I was an assistant missioner at a mission at Oxford University led by John Stott, uh, a great man of God. And uh, John Stott led every day in the debating chamber there. We had a, a, the teaching of Jesus. And he started on day one with, who is Jesus? Day two, uh, what is God? And John Stott, with his usual logic, said, well, you may think I've got it wrong, the wrong way around. I should start with, is there a God? And then decide, is Jesus son of God? But no, he said, you see, I, I can't understand the concept of God, but I do understand Jesus, a man who lived in our world, a man whose story is told in Scripture. I can hear what he said, I can see what he did. And if he's a man of integrity and honesty, 
and he says there is a God and he tells me what God is like, then I believe in God because he tells me what kind of God I am to believe in. And I, that's the way I came. I studied history in the days of stu- studying. Jesus, I understand. This Jesus talked intimately about God as his father. He lived the kind of life that I find tremendously attractive. And it was all based on his truth about God. So in these verses, have you seen what it says about God the Father? Very briefly. Talks about the Father, verse 20, loving the Son. A unique relationship. He talks about the Father judging. He talks about the Father in verse 26, having life in himself, which is a The Old Testament says abundantly. But he goes on to point out that supremely God is seen in raising the dead and he has given that authority to Jesus. I wonder if you ever think, do you ever stop and ponder what it will be like when you face God on that day? I used to ponder, if in fact I had to stand at the judgment seat before God the Father, I might just be able to say that, well, Okay, I stand condemned, but you didn't give me a chance. I, I hadn't hoped to live the kind of life you want me to live. But when I stand in, in verse 27, and I stand at the judgment day before Jesus, who bears in his body the marks of his death on the cross, whose whole being tells me of God's love in sending his Son into the world, every excuse will die on my lips. The one who judges me is the one who died for me. But of course the reverse side of that, the joy of it, for the only one who can condemn me because I believe in him will on that day accept me. Because you see already, verse 24, I have passed already from death to life. Truth about the Father who's given this to the Son and truth about the Son, the Son who will raise the dead The son who is in that lovely phrase in verse 20, there's a love relationship between God the Father and the Son. And if that be true, isn't it marvellous that then in that loving relationship he came down lovingly to die for me on the cross. Every time I come to communion where my mind is concentrated, it reminds me of that tremendous truth that the unique Son of God in that unique act came And in so doing, he offers me life. The life he offers, you see, is the life now. Not just then, life now. Through the Son, revelation. And then secondly, through the Son, resurrection. That comes in verses 24 to 30. When Jesus starts a new section with the phrase, I tell you the truth. That's the old Authorised version, verily, verily, amen, amen. This is doubly true, very important. What I want to teach teach you now is the way to life and death. Judgment now and judgment then. See, verses 24 to 27 talk about judgment now. Let, let Let me explain that to you. A few minutes ago, you said Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's what you said. The only person to get a place in the Apostles' Creed, apart from the Virgin Mary, was Pontius Pilate. And what we say is that 
We uh, judge Pontius Pilate because he sent Jesus to the cross. But when Pilate was there on that judgment day, when Pilate was sat in that hall, he believed he was judging Jesus. He was the one who had the authority. But in fact, it was Jesus judging him. And that's the whole theme of Scripture. In chapter 9 of of John's Gospel, uh, Jesus will say about the blind man, for judgment I came into the world, the word means crisis, so that those who think they see might become blind, and those who blind are blind might live. And the judgment is now. We judge and we are judged. I'll take a trivial example. It is trivial, but let me push it through. Margaret and I like to play Scrabble at night. We, we, we play Scrabble. Margaret is much better at Scrabble than I am. I put nice long words. I get about ten points, you know, and she puts quiz on a treble and gets 63 or something. It's most annoying, uh, but I, I do my best. Uh, but we, we, we play Scrabble with, with a CD on or some music, uh, and our favourite composer is Mozart. We love Mozart. Now, every now and again, I come across some Philistines who don't like Mozart, even, even say to me, Rubbish. Now, if you said about Mozart to me going out tonight, I should think no less of Mozart. I should just think less of you, of course, if that's what you mean about Mozart. I wouldn't call you rubbish, but that might be in my mind. So you see, who judges whom? And when we come to this great moment of Jesus, he is judging us when we think we are judging him. After all, you're thinking about Jesus Christ, some of you may not be believers, and you're pondering whether to be a Christian. So you sit in judgment on Jesus. You decide about him. What he is saying is that he offers us life now, and he is judging us. If we believe in him, verse 24, if we believe his word and believe in him who sent him, we have eternal life and we will not be condemned. That's where life begins. This is at the time of year when I get what I call a Keswick twitch. It's very odd for me not, be at, not to be at Keswick. For those who don't know this great thing, the Keswick Convention is happening. It starts, started yesterday. It's a great convention with thousands of people. And for 40 odd years I've been there virtually every year. And it's odd not to be at Keswick. But I'm, I get the Keswick twitch. And there was a very eccentric gentleman whom I knew in my early days at Keswick. He was eccentric. But he decided to do something unusual that chairman of Keswick Convention often are eccentric. I was there for nine years. It has an effect on you. Uh, this gentleman decided at his funeral service that he would, he would uh, give his own funeral address. It was his idea. He planned it long before he was going to speak at his own funeral, which I thought was great. Well, I, I'd often used illustration, and I used it once at Word Alive, which is a kind of offshoot of Keswick, which I was involved in from the beginning. And I used the illustration only to find his grandson said, we never did it, you know. At the end of the day, we ducked it. But he, had, he did do a tape, and the tape was of him speaking at the funeral service was to say, thanks, thanks for coming to my service of thanksgiving. You all thought I was dead. I'm never more alive than I am today. And uh, this was the t- well, they thought perhaps it was a little bit out of bad taste. I'm just pondering whether to do it myself. But anyway, that was... <laughs> perhaps Paul will not allow it to happen in such a circumstance. But what he, what he was saying was true that actually this man, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, was actually moving into life. That was right. We should have the courage to do it. I want to say, as I get older, and you know that uh, years ago, uh, a few of us started Friday Club for them. That's the old folk. Now I'm a paid-up member of them. Uh, And uh, I, I try to help some older folk to faith in Jesus, thinking perhaps as you get older, 
You talk about death more readily. Not true. The exact opposite is truth. Easy to talk to young people about death and its meaning than to older people because it's getting nearer, isn't it? Getting nearer. And the glory of this promise is that when I, as it were, face judgment now, when I make my response to Jesus Christ now, believing he's paid the judgment on the cross, he's died in my place, then I've already found life. So that death is, in a sense, incidental. I'm quite sure I shall hate, I shall fear dying. But because I believe that I've already passed from death to life, the judgment's already passed. That's gone. Judgment now, and finally judgment then. That's verses 28 to 30. Another amazing truth from Jesus. Don't be amazed, the time is coming when all in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, that's a difficult verse. So I got my commentaries out. Now, it's interesting. When, you're, when you have a slight problem, the commentaries you study always gloss over the bits you think are, are a problem. They're, they're very good on the bits you already know. They tell you what you already know. When it comes to the difficult bits, they duck them. So I had a... Because verse 29 does seem to suggest, doesn't it, at first, uh, salvation by works, that if you do good, you'll get there. And if you do evil, you won't get there. Uh, I was helped by um, a, a bishop of Durham of a bygone age, Westcott, who pointed out that there are different verbs in the original. But what he pointed out was that the contrast is not between life and death, or acquittal and condemnation, between life and condemned. And he points out that in, in those who have come to life, which is seen in doing good, faith without works is dead, of course. The proof that I'm a believer in Jesus is not that I, at the age of 17, said yes at a holiday camp. It's all that followed from that. If I, I've met people who've made kind of responses that has died on the, at the moment. So faith without works is dead. But ultimately, it's because of what Christ did and my response to him that I've already come to life. And the fruition, this is what Westcott says, if you like a quote from a bishop, in one case, the resurrection is accompanied by the full fruition of life. He's risen to life. Already he's alive and he will live. The resurrection, uh, the judgment's already passed, says Westcott. In the other, resurrection issues in judgment. You see, if I depend upon my works, I will be condemned. That's what I will rise. One man said to Billy Graham on occasion, I don't, Billy, I don't want mercy, I only want justice. And the answer is, if that is true, then the only answer at the end is inevitably condemnation. So judgment then is a solemn thought. Rise to be condemned because I'm trusting in my works, that's inevitable. Rise to life because I've responded to Christ and the judgment day is already past. I mentioned Pilate. There was a an old, golden, oldie hymn that will be known by about three people in this congregation about Jesus standing in Pilate's hall, lonely, forsaken, betrayed by all. And then comes the question, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. One day your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? And that's where I want to bring, as I begin to close my sermon, we're going to come to communion, which is a very important moment. I remember one 
person who went to become a, a, a reader in the Church of England who was converted, that communion rail went a bit shorter about there. He made his response, because I'd suggested we, should, we shouldn't take communion unless we really do believe in the one who died for us. And he made his response and then took communion rightly. There was a time, years ago, when a thing called evangelism explosioned. Remember evangelism explosion? And it was an attempt to go around and you went in twos and you had to knock on a door and you asked the famous two questions. Question number one, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Question number two, uh, on what grounds do you think you would go to heaven? I never did it. I hadn't got the courage even to try it. Can you imagine the end of a conversation stopper on most church doors, if, uh, on most house doors, if that's how you begin? But I want to suggest to you that actually the old prayer book suggests we ought to be doing that kind of thing. Do you, you believe the old prayer book? 1662 Book of Common Prayer has two services, one called the visitation of the sick, the other called the communion of the sick. And the communion of the sick says that whenever you take communion to a, a sick person, the minister ought to take other people with him because it's a communal meal. But the visitation of the sick says, that's very interesting, once you've met the sick person, you then ask him, have you made your will? Now again, it does seem a rather conversation stopper, doesn't it? <laughs> Somebody's ill, uh, have you made your will? This suggests one or two things, doesn't it? But anyway, that's what you're supposed to start with. Very good thing, I do hope you adults have all made your will. Very sensible, saved lots of problems in the future for everybody else. And then the, the minister goes on from asking that question to ask, where are you spiritually? Have you thought about what's going to happen on that day? You know, oddly enough, I was just reminded of how I want to finish my sermon by a little thing on the television, well, a little thing, a big thing for some people. These thousands of people who turned up to go abroad for, their, for the sunshine, S-U-N, only to discover their travel agents had gone bust and there was going to be no holiday, no sun. And I wondered, as I pondered that, how many people have made sure that there's somebody at the final check-in day when I actually check in at the end of my life? Have I got the ticket to go? And the odd thing to me is that we all do anything to make sure that we're all right for our holidays. We make sure we're well physically. The Bible says we should. Physical training is of value. It's of some value. But spiritual training, godly training has a promise for now and for eternity. Are you sure you've got a ticket at the final check-in moment? As I finish, will you please notice in verse 30, suddenly, suddenly, the sun, S-O-N, becomes I. And next week, when we go on further in the passage, we begin to talk about you. And it's not he and they, it's you and I. Oh, I guess you probably all, have all spotted it before, unless you haven't. You, do you know how it goes in the 23rd Psalm, that most fa favoured Psalm of all people, weddings and funerals? Amazing how it goes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. No. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, comfort me. 
In the valley of the shadow, suddenly the he becomes I. And I just want to say to you, as you come to this communion service, there's a, the, the beauty of communion to me, where it all goes wrong is some churches do nothing but communion. It becomes a kind of routine we just go through and endlessly going through. But a real communion service like this, following a word about judgment and resurrection life, the lovely thing is that we're all together in it. It's for all of us, provided we're believers, whatever our background, whatever our state. You can't have communion alone. Everything else in the religious world I do on my own. I pray on my own. I read the Bible on my own. I even sing hymns on my own. I've never given myself communion ever. Wouldn't make any sense. Because I have communion with the people of God. But when, when we come to you personally, we say, take it, take it. This is for you, take it, take, eat. And the bread and the wine are personally received. He, remember, he died for you. Feed on him in your heart. Well, for many of us, that's just a reminder, a renewal of it. Maybe for some of us, it is a call to us to be ready for that day. I know I haven't done everything in this passage. I know there are still things that you can still query. But I hope you've got the general message. The general message is that Jesus, claiming to be Son, the Son of God, is offering us life now if we believe in him and accept his word. Don't water it down. Trust him. And then one day we shall share in that final resurrection day. But the crisis moment is now. And in the midst, I was moved by Andrew's sermon this morning. You can imagine things in the church at the moment don't please me. I, 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 I get deeply troubled. It's good to hear a young man as troubled and passionate as I but I do want to say, in the midst of it all, it's just a new dedication to get on with the job while yet there is time and opportunity to present Jesus, who is life and who offers eternal life. Judge, let the judgment day be passed so that we're ready for the final judgment day. Let me pray with you. Father, we do thank you for your word and ask that you will help us to be responsive to it. And as we gather around the table, may we be renewed in spirit, be truly committed to you. And in an age when there's so much uncertainty, help us to be those who believe without doubt in the wonder of the Son who brings eternal life. And we enjoy that life in him. In Jesus' name. Amen.